No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Welcome to the next week of Substance. If you're newer, we're going through a book called Substance, written by a disreputable author that is focused on um, becoming people of substance, right? Becoming people that are oaks of righteousness in a world of vapor, right? And we focused in the early weeks on the fact that this requires what, what the Bible sometimes calls discernment, that is being able to see things for what they are and fleeing them when necessary. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, the, your eye is the lamp of your body. If your eye is full of light, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is darkened, your whole body will be full of darkness, meaning that your capacity to spiritually see will dictate the spiritual health of everything else about you. Just like your eye dictates whether or not your whole body can benefit from the sense of sight, right? And he said one of the most important discernments is this, no one can serve two masters. Because if you try, you're going you're gonna to be obedient to one and not to the other. You're going to love one and you're going to despise the other. And then he says, nobody can serve both God and mammon, right? Now, mammon is really only used there in the Bible. It's a personification. It's taking world, uh, everything that is just of this world as though that's all it mattered and turning that into like a person, or an idol, a god named Mammon. He, sa- he says, you can't actually serve both of those. It's not really possible. You either serve the creation without reference to the creator, or you live in the creation with reference to the creator in all things. You can't do both. And that will fundamentally define you, right? That de- determines whether or not you can discern, whether or not you can see. And so he says, if you want if you want to walk with God, what you have to do is you have to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. It's very hard to get a hold of God himself, right? You have to seek something that he's put in front of you, and the two things he's put in front of you is what he's doing and what he's like, his kingdom and his righteousness. And if you seek those things, you will find him, and the Bible says, Jesus said, everything else you need will be added to you as well. He said, because listen, the pagans run after all those, all those things, all the worries of all the stuff you need. He says, the pagans, that is, those who worship gods that are really just personifications of stuff. 
is they run after all that stuff, and, but your Father in Heaven knows you need them. But he, what he wants you to do is seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and he will give you those things that you need. Because you can't seek both of them like they're your master. So seek him, and he will give you the other things that you need. Right? And the Bible says that if we recognize this, and if we recognize that in Christ, God has given us everything that we need to become people of godliness or people of substance— then we can become what God promises in the Old Testament would happen to his people, that others would look at them and say that they are oaks of righteousness or a planting of God. Does that make sense? That's basically what we're doing. Okay, so this week, where we've come to is we've gone through the four spiritual marks of spiritual substance. Self-sacrificial love, the mind of Christ, virtuous freedom, keeping in step with the Spirit. And then we're talking about, like, how, what are the practices or mindsets to do that stuff? And last week we talked about embracing the ordinary. Like, if you can't embrace your actual rules, your actual responsibilities, the real repetitions of your life in some kind of God-given rhythm, you can't really live seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. You're going to be trying to leave your life constantly for other stuff, which actually brings us to this week. Because the stuff we want to leave that ordinary life for other stuff are essentially diversions. In our life— especially Americans at this moment are full of diversions. And in a sense, fighting diversions for us is fighting worldliness. If you're going to narrow it all down, what does it look like to fight worldliness? You could just about narrow it down to, well, worldliness, as it pushes into our life, is always diverting us from the thing God wants us to do. And in that sense— all of fighting worldliness, practically speaking, is seeing diversions for what they are and fighting them. Right? There's this kind of strange, almost throwaway line in Proverbs where Solomon says, a lizard can be caught with your hand, but it's found in king's palaces. Right? You can just imagine Solomon spending all those years building that palace and walking through with guests and there being like a gecko on the wall. And being like, how does that thing get in here? Right? I remember waking up in India one time, and from my bed, opening my eyes without moving my head, I could count seven geckos, right? But the, the answer is, like, they—you just can't keep track of everything, and it turns in that, that geckos don't knock and announce their entrance. They, they just sneak in wherever the bugs are, and they're eating them, right? Like, that's it. And so even though the thing can be caught and gotten rid of— there it is. Now, why the heck is that in the Bible, right? And it's, it's in the Bible because that relates very directly to human life. Our lives, apart from the disciplines of virtue, will be actually filled with things that can be caught with a hand and easily gotten rid of, but there they are. If we look at our own lives and we look carefully at them and we see where worldliness is lodged, what we'll find is, is that they're things that could actually be easily gotten rid of. And yet, there they are. You could think of a—there was a—in in the book I talk about this, uh, this math uh, study that um, Jim Stigler did where he took a bunch of kids, all first graders, and he gave them an unsolvable math problem. And he gave them to American kids. And American kids worked on them really hard until they gave up about 30 seconds later. And then he took the same problem and he gave them to first grade Japanese children. And most of them he had to cut off after an hour. Okay, now, 
if we're not racists, we don't believe the difference between those two is anything in the genetic makeup of the children. Right? So what's the difference? And the difference really is culture. In America, giving up is almost a virtue. Right? Quitting. Right? Because you wouldn't want to keep doing something after you don't want to do it anymore. Right? With the, with the, mag, with the, with choice being king, quitting becomes queen. And so we just, you just don't do stuff. You just get help. You just, there's plenty of resources around us. We wouldn't want a kid to labor on a math problem and so therefore damage his self-esteem. Not realizing that actually fighting through inability and accomplishing something after hard work is actually what creates real self-worth and belief in self-capacity. Right? C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters that every age, in every age, temptation and diversion tempts every age to fortify themselves against the thing they are least likely to struggle with. Right? So, for example, right now, in an age of growing hatred, what are we fortifying ourselves against in America? Making sure we're on the right side. That's what all—look at the news. That's, everything's about, are you on the right side? Are you on the right side about what should happen to these statues? Are you on the right side about what should happen to this person who said this line? Are you on the right side of the thing of this? Are you on the right side of this piece of legislation? Are you on the right side of whether or not Mr. Trump should have said that? Are you on the—are you on the right side of it? Are we taking crazy pills? In a time of increasing hatred, you focus on increasing temperance. Controlling your temper, not taking things out of context, not blowing things out of proportion, not being easily offended, and so on, right? I mean, still, we live—right now in America, we are, we are one of the most licentious, sexually out-of-control people in the history of the world, and yet we are still fortifying ourselves against Puritanism, right? Well, we wouldn't want to be anti-sexual. What? And you can go through almost everything. You look at all the stuff that we're like fortifying ourselves against, right? Well, we need to make sure we don't do blah, 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 right? And this is a great example, right? We need to make sure we don't close down our options. And so our lives are flooded with a sewer of diversions, and we don't even really recognize them for what they are. Because essentially we're materialists and we want to acquire things and in our acquisition of more things than any humans have ever imagined, we want to make sure that we don't limit our ability to acquire things. When our acquiring of things is acquiring tons of diversions which are diverting us from the things that we already had that were the basis of life's meaning and value and purpose and were the fountainheads of real human happiness that is sustainable and enlivening rather than the the diversions which happinesses are deadening. Lewis is totally right about this. That we humans are naturally given to and naturally tempted to fortify ourselves in the areas where we are least likely to have a problem so that we will not face the places where we really need to be fortified, where we really need to be rebuked, and where we really need to believe. And diversion is the one for us as Americans in 2017, especially if you are moderately educated and moderately wealthy. If you've ever bought a coffee outside of your house, if you've ever shopped anywhere but the dig and save, if you drive a vehicle that has an internal combustion engine, 
You are wealthy, and this is your problem. Full stop. Not nuanced. The diversions of our lives drain, just drain out of our being our God-given capacity for grit and focus, discipline and attention. The two things most necessary to become people of substance. You have to be able to see and attend to mentally and emotionally on the things that are the most valuable, and you have to be able to give yourself to them, and you need to be able to block everything else. Focus and attention. Focus and attention are what is one of those most valuable things, one of the most fundamental human capacities. It's so necessary, and it's like a muscle. Like, if you don't do it, you can't pay attention to anything. Like, if you, like if you just go home for winter break, and you don't read anything, and you're a college student, and you, you're in a major where you actually have to study, right? There's like four or five of those still, right? And then you go home for winter break, and you just play video games, and hang out with people, and eat stuff, and you come back. Your first day of class, you try to read for three hours, and you bear it. You can't, really. Because the mind, our capacity to focus, is like a muscle. It's in and out of shape, right? And yet focus is one of the most fundamental needs for us to grow as people, for us to do what we need to do, for us to become people of substance. And grit, the ability to say, I'm doing this, you just try to stop me. I will never give up. Ever. Right? And that's what we need for, for everything, to deal with our illnesses, to make a, a blessing our marriages, to hang in there with kids and friends that are being idiots, to work jobs that are not our dream job. Listen, do you know what percentage of people work in a job that is like play to them? It's some, somewhere around zero, all right? It's, it's definitely in single digits. Now, there are lots of people who do jobs where they like some of the things. And I, was, I was literally reading an opinion something on work by someone who's partying, whatever we're reading. And, and they, they said, every human being has a right to work in a job they love. And I'm like, what planet do you live on? Nobody works a job they love. I mean, pe there are people who work jobs they love, what the job means. They love certain things about the job. They love certain things that they sometimes get to do in the job. They, they like certain—but they don't love the whole job. And if everybody had a right to work a job that they loved, your garbage would stay at your house forever. Right? People do jobs because they, they need to eat and they need to be productive, and they need to do something productive. That doesn't mean they're going to love it. You change your attitude towards your job. You don't use your attitude to conjure one, right? Grit and focus. Discipline and attention. And discipline drains these out of us, and it chokes, and it strangles us, and it makes us less human. And it makes us unable to do anything. And so then when Jesus steps forward and demands of us, and he says, listen, you're going to become this. We go, that's impossible. It's crazy. And all of our friends go, you're so right. It's crazy he could ask that of you. Like celibacy, for example. I mean, you should see the like hysteria people enter into with the concept of a human being not having sex for an extended period of time. It's insane! You're gonna be—you're gonna molest people. It's—I mean, it's crazy, right? And like, there's a widow sitting over there who's been celibate for like 40 years, and she's like, it's not that hard. 
And there are tons of these things that where Jesus says, you're going to become this. By the power of the Spirit and the beauty of the gospel being re-related to creation as it really is, you're going to become this. And you're like, I can't. That's why there's a church. You need a new group of people who are like, yeah, yes, we can. To not coin a phrase, right? Yes, we can become this in Jesus. Yes, we can become this with the power of the Spirit. Yes, we can become a different kind of people. Yes, we can do things that people don't even think is humanly possible. Yes, we can with Jesus. We can, right? And we are a people who mutually believe that so that when Jesus says, hey, you're going to be this, and we're like, there's somebody who'll be like, I think we can. If Jesus says we can, I think we can, right? So what that means is there is no—we need to understand in absolute terms there is no route to spiritual freedom and spiritual substance without escaping diversion. There is, there is no way to get around this one. There's no way to be like, well, no. God's kingdom and his righteousness cannot be pursued by diversion, nor his peace or his joy. Understand? Okay, so a couple points about diversion. First, and complicated, diversion is bad, Okay? bad. You need, you need to see it for what it is, and you need to flee it. And it has to be an active, non-passive process. And this is difficult because what diversions do is they make us increasingly passive. We're so afraid of men becoming too aggressive, okay? Lewis said one time, you know, I, I teach students in college, and I, I hear from my professor, colleagues, that the kids are like, they're too passionate. We need to like, we need to like cut down jungles. He's like, we don't need to cut down jungles. We need to irrigate deserts. There is no real passion in them at all, right? Like, our problem is not that men or women would become like too passionate or too assertive. They just need to become assertive for the right things. Our fear about the assertiveness of men is because they're sort of for idiotic, boorish, sexually perverse things when we don't like it. What we need is a world full of incredibly assertive men asserting themselves as husbands and fathers and workers and people who are productive and who are cleaning up after hurricanes and fighting right battles and defending against wrong ones. And the same can be said of women. But diversion will make you increasingly passive in all ways. And you need to see it, and you need to flee it. And that's hard if you've been wallowing in passivity, which includes the logic of victimization. So diversion is always a characteristic of humanity. But right now in modernity, what we're living in, it's an epidemic. And you, you act differently when you're like in a place where people get a cold or if like you're in central France at the moment of the bubonic plague, okay? You behave differently. And concerning diversion, this is a bubonic plague moment for us as human beings, okay? Because there's essentially there's three levels of Diversion, right? One is just the obvious fact of it, right? There are things in our life that we would rather be doing than the things that we are supposed to be doing, and we would like to just do them, okay? But secondly, we have to recognize that there is a longing wound in us that is part of who we are that really, really wants to have the diversion, right? If you read the book, you read the quote by Pascal, where Pascal basically says, um, it is because of the hole in our heart that we run after and we long to be diverted. 
It's not just that the diversion is there and we might do it if we want to. Our heart is constantly gazing about for diversions to seize upon because we are so uncomfortable with being with ourselves and with God. And then, then thirdly, the diversions themselves are not simply the same as they used to be. They have advanced, especially through the use of technology and culture, right? And so, so for, for example, you know, 150 years ago, the male instinct to be attracted to a woman was designed to look at a group of people in which there might have been several women and to identify features of fertility that they associated with attractiveness and that allowed human beings to bond and form families and engage in fertility and produce another generation of human beings, right? Now, at any moment of the day, they have naked women in their pockets and naked women in front of their screens in in 0.1 second. Like, that God-given capacity for attraction and fertility and the creation of bonding— was not meant for That won't sound good on audio. (laughs) You understand? And so there's all these desires and interests and focuses and things that we have in us that technology, that, that, that we're, we have like naturally this telescopic vision for, and a, a, it's very potent in us so that we can be far seeing and see it out there and through imagination bring it into ourselves. But when you take those things and you put them right in front of us like this, and you're looking at it essentially with a telescope, it's like looking at the sun with a telescope, and it just burns you out. And through technology, that happens to us, right? And so what it produces is what social scientists are now calling boredom-induced distraction addiction, right? But it's not just boredom that leads us off to to distraction and then becoming addicted to that distraction. It's also anxiety. So you could have Ada, right, which is a strange quote from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I suppose, and then responsibility, right? Like, for a lot of us, it's really not even our boredom that distracts us. It's that we're actually supposed to be doing this, and we find our lives boring, and so we want to go do this. Which means if you, if you try to think about this as clearly as we can, there are at least seven really obvious threats that make diversion epidemic for us in this moment, right? There's the fact that it's always present. You don't have to pursue it. The fact that it's an immediate, quick hit of pleasure. Like, like for example, ga- like games, right? Video games right now, especially the ones you play on your phone. Like, have you, you remember Candy Crush? Right? Okay, if you have it on your phone, delete it right now. Just stop listening. Delete it. Okay, that game was designed on the basis of social science to be as addictive as possible to human beings. The whole, everything in that game was simply designed based on human brains and senses of pleasure to be as addicting as possible. And more and more games are being designed that way, obviously, right? Because, well, people play them. But part of the idea is almost, right, so you like, you wait a little while so that you can get the next thing. You're like, oh, I got the next thing. Like, there's a saying in my house now, video games aren't accomplishments. I just say it constantly. My, my son's like, dad, I did like a million damage in War Robots. And I'm like, son, congratulations, but video games aren't accomplishments. It's everything you're supposed to do done before you, because until all that you're supposed to do is done, son, that video game isn't leisure, it's diversion. And it goes, goes from something that could be received wholesomely to something that is definitely being taken illicitly, right? Infinite variety, 
That is that there's variety without originality. Look, if you look at all the TV shows we watch, okay, they're all the same show. Every one of them. They're all the exact same show, but with slightly different characters. It's a new young pretty girl. It's a new slightly older salt and pepper haired distinguished man. It's a new person yelling at such and such. It's a new version of righteous indignation. It's a new group of people having illicit sex in a pantry. It's a new this. It's a new that. But it's the same. It's the same thing. It's, a, it's, it's this exact same thing, right? But it feels like variety, and so it feels titillating, right? It's massively engrossing because, like I said, it's right there, and it's pulling you out. It's anesthetizing, and it distracts from a soul syndrome, so we want it so badly, right? It's attention and discipline depleting, so as we're using it, it's making us more passive, which makes us less able to resist it the next time. But even though we're less able to resist it the next time, we get less pleasure out of it next time. So meanwhile, the amount of pleasure we get from it is ratcheting down, but meanwhile, our ability to resist it is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And so we go, well, I'm really not enjoying it as much as I used to. Maybe I should stop doing it, but it's now much harder to go without it. So we keep doing stuff that isn't pleasing us anymore because that is our mind's new home. And then there's the, what I call the conscience deluding or the, or the spy effect. That like, we begin to th- make up reasons why this is okay. And they feel so honest to us, right? Which leads us to the second thing. That dis- diversion is bad, but discernment is good. And we have to learn to see the difference between rest, leisure, fun, and diversion, okay? Because one of the questions that ought to leap into your mind is this. Okay, Nick, are you saying basically that we can never have fun again the rest of our lives? Like, we need to see God and his righteousness in the most, like, difficult way possible, and so forth. And my answer is, if you had the right attitude about it, it actually wouldn't be that bad. But no, I'm not saying that, okay? So, one of the things we have to do is be, learn to tell the difference between something wholesome like God-given leisure and something unwholesome like diversion, okay? So you might define them this way. Leisure is built off of the Latin root for license, right? That is, I issue you a license and say, you can now do this, right? So every year I buy a fishing license. I'm issued a thing that says I'm allowed to go out and harass the fish in local lakes, right? And nobody can stop me from doing that. Do you understand? And that means that I can do it and nobody can rightly stop me because I have, I have, that, that time is, is okay for me, right? So leisure is essentially that which you have license to do, something that is free and available for which you have time that is free and available. So the thing is free and available and your time to do it is free and available, right? And nobody has to provide those for you, but nobody can take those away from you if they exist. Does that make sense? Now, diversion is the pursuit that is diverting you from some duty or state, right? Which includes what we talked about last week, our roles, responsibilities, and repetitions. Those things that our life is made up of. Anything that—so diversion is built on the word for divert, right? Anything that is diverting you from something you are supposed to be doing is therefore a diversion. Does that make sense? So you could say diversion like this. I want blank because I don't want to— blank. So, for example, this week, um, I, I went down the hall, and three of the women who work here, I was like, hey guys, 
what's going on? And I talked to them for like four minutes. The main reason I talked to them was not so that I would recognize that they were human beings and we'd have a little chat and they'd all feel better about all of our lives together, working together as a team. I just really didn't want to write my sermon. I was kind of bored with the work point I was working on, and I really wanted to just eat something. And so I just walked down the hall, and I just like yucked it up with them for a couple of minutes, and I went back and worked on my sermon. Now, that was not leisure. That was a diversion, because I was actually supposed to be doing something else. Does that make sense? Now, if my sermon was done, and I had a few minutes, and I wanted to go yuck it up with them, and if I enjoyed talking with them, that's leisure. But because I wanted to blank, because I didn't want to blank— I want to go fishing because I don't want to have a fight with Alexi about this thing we have to sort out. That's diversion. I want to go fishing because I have a few hours to use and Jude really wants to go and we'll have some fun. That's leisure. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, part of the issue is, okay, great, Nick, that's, that's great when it's obvious, but what do we do when it's not obvious? And the two things— you want to do when it's not obvious is, is that you want to look at two things. Your is conscience and community. Conscience is basically this idea that um, you have to know its voice and know yourself both as a human being and your habits and wounds. Okay, I'm not going to take too much time on that. But there is, there is a voice inside of you. It does not look like a cricket, but it is basically saying, it, it is expressing what the Spirit wants and it's expressing what the right version of you, the thinking one, wants. And it's saying, we shouldn't do this, or we should do that, or whatever. And you need to also understand what you are as a human being. Like that you're given to certain diversions, and you have this certain wound in your heart, and also your habits. There's some things that just the way you were brought up, the way you think, your, the wounds of your background, or the habits that you engage in, that make you more prone to some diversions than others. And you need to know that. Right? I have a, I have a pretty, I have a pretty um, obsessive personality. You would never know that about me, but, but I do. And so there are certain things that I can't do because I tend to obsess about things. So like, I can't start new hobbies and like, I can't get into something new. I can't do, I can't do any of that stuff because if I do, it just like takes over my whole world because I can't do anything a little. I just am totally incapable of doing anything a little, right? So that's me, and I need to know that, and I need to figure that into how my conscience is working about what I can and can't do, what I should and shouldn't do, right? But also community, right? What do other people who love Jesus and have the mind of Christ on this thing say about that thing? You're, you're wondering if it's a diversion or if it's leisure, right? Because they'll tell you if they love you, if they listen to week three. Now, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves, though, is, okay, Nick, but what is the mind of Christ on this kind of thing? Is there anywhere in the Bible that deals with more than just command? Where, so there's, there is the spirit of what Christ has done, right? Where, where we're supposed to walk in the spirit with the mind of Christ, right? Which is this sort of, like, very general, but broadly applicable, right? And then there's, like, specific biblical commands. Do not sleep with your neighbor's wife. Got it, right? That's, like, super particular— but like, what about—how do you make the decisions about stuff? Are there principles to use to get a little bit more specific? And there are. So there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 10 that, we, that Femi read earlier, and then a corresponding one a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians that says this. And they're very—you can tell they're very similar in structure. He says, and now he's, he's sort of quoting what the Corinthians are saying here. He's like, you say, you say everything's permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. 
Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Should I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Wait, I thought we were talking about food. Okay, so this is about whether or not it's okay for Christian dudes in the Corinthian church to still go to prostitutes after they've become Christians. That's what he's discussing, right? And so he's like, let me take you through some principles about thinking that through, right? Members with a prostitute never— do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, he's now quoting Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. You do not know that your—do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit— who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Okay, so you see what's happening here is he's basically saying, okay, let me take you through what it looks like to have the mind of Christ in relationship to a theology of being a physical creature in relationship to whether or not you can have sex with a prostitute. Okay, now this is to be very instructive. So the first thing he says is don't, you need to understand how Jesus— and the work of the Spirit and what God has done relates to you as a physical creature. And he says, what did God do with Jesus when Jesus got put dead in a tomb? Right? He says, here's what God did. He raised his body. So what that tells us is our embodiment and our physical bodies are eternal things. That is, God didn't just throw away Jesus' old body and give him a brand new one. He actually raised the old one into an eternal undying state such that there is continuity between his original body and his eternal body in the spirit and in reality. And so therefore, your body— is your body, and it is bound up in who you are. And what you do with your body is what you do as a spirit. Because the reason why this is important is because in Greek thought, your physical body and your spirit were totally different things. Your, your body was like a jail for your soul, and your soul could totally exist without your body, and your body actually to brought down your soul because your soul was full of rationality, but your body was full of these animal instincts that wanted to do things like eat and have sex, and so that kept you from being this pure spiritual thinker. And so the, the Greek thinkers was like, they're really like, totally different things, and you really want to get rid of the body and be this spiritual being, and Paul's like, that's actually not what you are. It's not what you are at all. You are this ensouled body. You are a composite creature that is not really meant to be taken apart and will be put together again eternally, right? And so he says, and he says, now, if you unite, and now, because of that, bodies that unite and create new bodies through reproduction, when they come together, they become one flesh, both physically in terms of creating a new creature, but also spiritually in an incredibly profound way. It's on the first page of the Bible. So therefore, and yet, but you, you know if you're a Christian that when you came to Jesus, you, you're, you became, that is the whole you, both body and spirit, became one with him in spirit. Which means there is a oneness between the spirit of Christ and your spirit, but it also means 
there is a oneness between the Spirit of Christ and your body. Does that make sense? So he's saying, because there's no, there's no fundamental separation between your spirit and your body. So therefore, if you're united with Christ, your spirit and your body are united with Christ. And therefore, whatever you unite your body to, you are uniting Christ to. Right? So, does it seem appropriate to unite Christ with a prostitute? Probably not. And so he goes on and he makes a number of these points all about the body and then how it relates to sexual morality. Now here's, here's what we should take from this. What we should take from this is he's laying down these very clear principles to think through what we do with questionable matters. Right? He's saying, everything is permissible for me, but not everything's beneficial. That is, is the thing itself actually beneficial to you for your true good? Secondly, is it beneficial for others? That is, is it constructive? Now, you might say, where was that in 1 Corinthians 6? It was the whole meaning of 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, which is about food sacrifice to idols and what you should do with eating that or not eating that, which Paul, Paul gives a lot of different answers for that one, right? That's all about other people. Because what he says is, you can take a cow and you can sacrifice it before a stone statue of Zeus, and it doesn't fundamentally transform the cow. Because the idol is nothing. So how does the idol get on the meat? It doesn't. It doesn't. The, the, the cow still belongs to the Lord because the cow is part of creation. Because the cow is part of creation, he doesn't belong to Zeus. He belongs to the Lord and you can eat it. So then when wouldn't you eat it? Well, if they take the cow into the temple of Zeus and have a big party where everybody's worshiping Zeus while they eat the cow, well, then you can't do that because the, the worship of Zeus, who is a false god, and the eating of the cow are bound together in everybody's mind and conscience, so you can't do it. Or if you go to somebody's house and they have some of the meat from the meat market that got sacrificed and they just put it in front of you and they just eat it. But if they say this was sacrificed to such and such an idol, clearly they are associating and making an issue of that the two are bound together in their conscience. And at that point, because you, you can't lead them away from Jesus, you don't eat. Because you're saying, well, if you're going to attach the meat to Zeus, Zeus isn't God, and I will not venerate him or revere him. I won't eat. Does that make sense? Which could be applied very directly to whether or not a Christian college student should go out to clubs that are specifically designed to help young people fornicate with each other, and what that temple is for. And what the use of the sacraments of drinking and intoxication are for. Does that make sense? They're very similar kinds of ideas. And if you want to think them through, is it beneficial for me, really, in my true good? Is it constructive for others in their true good? Third, will it master me? Will the thing that I'm using turn around and control me? And then fourth, is it in line with who you are in Christ? Now you'll notice from 1 Corinthians 6 and 10, the main focus is on the fourth one. The problem is, is that in order to understand how the fourth one applies, you need to learn more about Christ. Which is why we do things like read the Bible, and have Sunday classes, and have small groups, and have long sermons, and so forth. Does that make sense? And so you can go through and you can apply these things, right? Are you, are you dating that girl because you're looking for a wife to build a constructive future marriage in which there is fertility and shared life, in which you can help her when she gets Alzheimer's, when she's old, and so that you can enrich the lives of each other, fighting for each other's spiritual formation at every moment? Or are you looking for something to do and someone to squeeze? 
for now. When you should be investing in other things, right? Well, one is a constructive pursuit, which also has leisure in it because, dang it, you just can't help but enjoy people you're falling in love with, right? Or it's a diversion, and you will still fall in love, and it will master you, right? And you could say this, talking to fun people, I already gave that example, video games versus fishing. My wife never complains, almost never complains when I take my son fishing. And yet she is prone to point out that when I sit and play like multiplayer games with Jude, like when we're playing video games together, she's prone to be like, you're wasting your time and you're ruining our son, right? She doesn't say it quite like that. She's not like Alexi Luther, but she's, you know. (laughs) And the point of that is, is that she recognizes a fundamental wholesomeness and real interaction and shared pursuit and something that is active and not passive in the one and really not in the other. And it's, it's, it's true. Jude and I, I have no memories from playing the video game with him because it's the same six minutes over and over and over again. And, and nothing is big enough or small enough or hurtful enough or ecstatic enough to create a memory. It's like a gray world of nothing. And yet, when we hauled in and pitched black a 15-pound catfish we did not intend to catch last night, we will remember that and he will remember that for a really long time. And he'll remember how cold he was, probably. And you can go through all of these, and you, will, and you can think them through on the basis of those four things, and you will find, and especially if you converse, not just with conscience, but with another person in community who has the mind of Christ in this, it comes about. You won't like the answer oftentimes, right? But you, you'll know pretty well whether or not the thing is a diversion or a leisure. Right? Now, but one of the things we always have to face is this, that none of these things will decide for you. Right? Like, you, you can be pretty sure about whether or not you should go to prostitutes or, like, seek a career in, you know, suicide bombing or something like that. Those, those careers are not long. Um, but they won't answer lots of other questions for you. Should I date this person or marry this person? Should I do this job? Should I get another degree? Another degree is a really great one, especially for like young white people, right? Should I get, I'll get a master's or a doctorate and blah, 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 right? Doctorates are for the most part useless for most people. There's a lot more people getting them that need them, right? It's a racket, okay? Now some people should get doctorates, but not very many, okay? It's really a waste of five years of your life for most people. Now, it's time to get a job for most people, okay? Or it's time to, like, pick a spouse, or it's time to, like, do something, right? Most people don't even study an undergrad, much less their master's degree. So there's lots of things like this, right, where you're like, well, should I or shouldn't I? Well, mm, think about it from the perspective of what Jesus is doing in and with your life for the productivity and service that he's called you to, and is this thing necessary at this time? Does that make sense? Now, if we, if we recognize that the decision isn't made for us, we have to realize that, therefore, this is—we have to grow in virtuous freedom. We have to grow in understanding self-sacrificial love. We have to grow in the mind of Christ, and we have to grow in keeping in step with the Spirit. Because trying to figure out what to, what to do and what not to do is a little bit like trying to get a hold of a salmon without killing it, right? Like, salmon are very strong— very slippery, and very good at, like, moving in one direction out of your hands. You'll see, like, this woman has special gloves on because salmon are basically impossible to hold, unless you have sandpaper dagger gloves to hold them, which is what guides all have, so they can get the money-making picture, okay? 
But if you're like, I'm going to stop this salmon, and you stick a spear through it with legalism, right? Yeah, you stopped the salmon, but you just killed the living thing, right? And your life is a little like the salmon that like wants to divert itself, but you gotta, gotta get control of it. And which should lead you to some idea of how messy a process this is gonna be and how embarrassing. And so because of that, if we're not strong in virtuous freedom, if we're not strong in the mind of Christ, we can't negotiate how to do it. But we can always work from at least two basic principles, okay? So you've got those four. But on the more general sense of what God is like and what God wants for your life, it's very easy to recognize that the Bible says that he doesn't want you to waste your life, right? All of godliness is like how to live a beautiful life formed in Christ. That is, God doesn't want you to waste your life, right? It's pretty obvious. But here's the other thing you need to realize. God is also not a slave owner. You understand? In fact, if you read the book of Exodus, he has a complicated relationship with slave owners, i.e. he kills them, okay? He, his, his goal, if you read the fourth commandment, he's like, dang it, you're going to rest. And if you don't rest, I'm going to kill you. Like, he's pretty adamant about it. And it's not—the fourth commandment isn't a throwaway commandment. All through the Bible, it's quoted again and again and again, that if you don't let people rest, you're sinning against them. If you try to work people to death, if you try to work yourself to death, you're sinning against who and what you are. Right? God is not a—he is not a slaveholder. He is not a slave driver. He actually—in fact, it says in 1 Timothy 6, it says, as for the rich, right, this is how you should talk to rich Christians. In this present age, charge them not to be arrogant or haughty and not to put their hopes on the uncertainty of their riches, but on God. Why? Because God's going to take all that money away and he's going to stick them in a hole. No, he says, listen, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So anything any human being has to enjoy is a gift of God, because God is full of pleasures. There's, there's all kinds—Lewis said it this way. There's all kinds of things that human beings can do all day that doesn't bother God in the least and that pleases us entirely, right? Eating and washing and sleeping and loving and playing games and enjoying ourselves and making jokes and, I mean, you just go on and on. It's just all kinds of human activities that are perfectly okay with God that he's given, right, for us to enjoy. Sin always has to be something twisted. You always have to, like, turn it around and contort it and make it unwholesome to make it wicked, which is easy to do with wicked creatures, but it's not easy to do with God's good creation, Right? He wants to give us things to enjoy. And if you think those two things through in a relationship to those four principles that Paul gives, is it beneficial for you? Is it constructive for everybody involved? Is it going to get a hold of you and make a slave out of you? And is it in line with who you are in Christ, knowing that Jesus doesn't want you to waste your life, but that Jesus isn't a slave driver either? Right? Okay. So a couple, a few minutes on tactics. Four to be exact. First, you have to seek the mind of Christ on diversion. What is diversion? What's it doing to you? How is it going to kill you? Second, learn to ask yourself this question. When I do such and such, do I return to my roles and responsibilities more refreshed and more engaged? Or do I come back to my roles and responsibilities still thinking about the diversion and wishing I could do it again as soon as possible? If you're wishing you could go do it again as soon as possible, you are addicted, it is a diversion, and it is destroying your humanity slowly. 
if you do the thing and you come back to your roles and responsibilities and you're like, I feel ready to do this again, to engage fully with it, then it might be a good leisure or rest. Third, you're me- we're meant to be helped with wisdom, not legalism. And so when you decide, I'm going to do these things to fight diversion, remember, it's not a performance. You're not justifying yourself by doing it. You're putting these things in place to help yourself do what you need to do. Jesus already performed everything perfectly for you on the cross in his life, death, and resurrection. Whether or not you eat ice cream after 8 o'clock does not justify you. If you don't, you're not a good person. If you do, you're not a terrible person. You're already a terrible person in sin. You're already an incredible worthwhile creature in the divine image in your creation. You're already infinitely loved by the God who died for you and rose for your justification. You belong to him and you're his beloved. Now just don't eat the ice cream if it's bad for you. And if you failed on Thursday, let's try wrestling the salmon again on Friday. Understand? And so you can make all kinds—there's all kinds of things like pre-decision rules. Like, I have all these rules about, like, when I can eat stuff and when I can't eat stuff. Like, when I'm allowed to read certain articles and where I, like, park them if I want to read them later. I, I like, I'm—if I, I have a list of stuff that I want to buy that has to stay on that list for a month before I can shop for it because I'm prone to distracting myself into shopping. That's really humiliating for me to tell you, but it's totally true. Okay, I want to buy another gun, another coat. Another, I, was, I was researching coats with electric heaters inside of them the other day. Because for some reason I need that, even though I—listen, in the front closet of their house, of our house, I have 12 jackets. 12. Now, in my defense, most of them were purchased at the dig and save. But, I, but it doesn't really matter, right? I'm insane. And so I I have this list online that is both a gift list for Nick and a stuff I want to buy and stuff has to be there on a month before I'm allowed to shop for it. Now do I, do I do that every day? No, I don't. While I was writing this sermon, I shopped for a left-handed bolt action rifle and 260 caliber. (laughs) I confess. Right? But dang it, I'm going to wrestle that salmon today, and I'm going to wrestle it tomorrow, and I'm going to keep wrestling with it, and I'm going to keep asking people to confront me about it. Right? Now, fourth. Okay, we're running out of time here. You need to replace the thing you're trying to get away from. So if you're trying to get away from watching TV two hours a night as a family, which you should, right? You replace it with a family game. You replace it with reading together. You replace it with everybody has to come up with a three-minute stand-up routine to do in front of the family every week. You gotta, you you gotta tell a funny story about what happened this week. You gotta, something. Just, just replace it with something. Does that make sense? Great. Get real accountability. Okay, listen, do not select for accountability, for your own accountability, other sin wallowers and, and, and snugglers, okay? Like, if you're like, all right, okay, I'm really addicted to pornography. I really want to get free of it. I need to find a bunch of other, like, 20-something guys that have been addicted to pornography for 12 years. No, 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 you don't. No, you need to find some older guy that will call you a pervert and be like, that girl probably got molested by her uncle, and what the heck are you doing? And like, you need, let me, give me your computer, and I'm going to throw it in the garden. Like, you need, you need somebody who, it's going to be humiliating to talk to them, okay? You know who, you know who my accountability partners are who get the printout for what I look at on a computer screen on all my devices? My wife and two elders that can start the process of firing me, okay? And it's worked really well. 
So don't choose an accountability partner that you hate talking to, but who is gracious and loving, but will stick it to you. Not a bunch of, like, fellow traveling wallowers in, like, even if they're really trying to fight it, but they're not having any success. You need to take that person and go find somebody who can help you. You can't help each other. Okay? All right, moving on. Use manners to direct your limits. Okay, that may sound strange. Okay, but listen. If there's another human next to you and you are on your phone, you are using—it's just bad manners. Okay, it's just bad manners. To be like reading the latest thing in your news that doesn't matter when there's a human being that infinitely matters right next to you. You understand? If, if we just had some manners, just some manners, see the southerner nodding over there, just some manners, we would stop a lot of this stuff we do, especially on our phones. Okay? Your phone is a marvel of modern technology and a deadly poison at the same time. And if you don't see it that way, I just don't know what to tell you about your perspective, but you should change it, okay? And then seven, this is the last one I think, is you need to make a new home for your mind. You need to ask yourself, where does your mind go? Where does it go? When you get up to go to the bathroom, when you don't really need to go to the bathroom, but you just don't want to study anymore, you just don't want to do something, like, what do you start thinking about while you walk that way? What do you, when you lay down in bed at night, when you wake up in the morning, when you have a free moment, when you're driving in the car, what, where does your mind go? I know for some of you it's like, it goes nowhere. (laughs) That could be worse, right? But you probably know where it goes. It probably goes to like the person that's giving you more attention than your spouse, the vacation you really wish you could afford, the thing that you want to buy, the blah, 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 blah. Right? That's one of the reasons why you can like memorize scripture verses in the morning. So you have something to put your mind into rather than that other thing. Does that make sense? Now, now just to end with this, you need to realize that I was talking with somebody, oh, the lady who came for the Fresh Grounded Faith Women's Conference we had, like 850 women here, sponsored, like 13 people came to Jesus. It was apparently really good. I'm not allowed to go. Um, but the lady came, and she was from Texas, and I said, I said, hey, what do you call the thing you put over your head when you go out in the rain? And she said, well, it's an umbrella, right? And I said, yes, it is, because I lived in the South for seven years. And the accent is, you know, Southerners put the accent, like, the, the one way that all of the South is progressive is they move the accents a couple syllables forward, okay? That's universal in America. And so, I love that. And what you need to realize is, is that Jesus has called us to gracious striving, And Jesus is Southern, at least in this sense. He moves the emphasis and accent of those two words to the first word. Okay? It is on the—you need to emphasize the gracious part. Okay? Jesus has already defeated diversion for you morally. Okay? The question is not whether or not you'll be a good person and be thin. Or be a good person and—it's not about your— Jesus died for you, okay? He perfectly performed this on your behalf. The question is, are we going to die drinking the poison of diversion, destroying our real lives? Or are we going to be free in Christ, stepping into his power, growing in the mind of Christ, walking in the spirit, being strengthened in virtuous freedom, and living a life of self-sacrificial love? Or are we going to be devoured and pacified and shrunk and twisted by diversion? which is just another name for worldliness.
Or are we going to say, Jesus has done everything for me, and I am going to wrestle this freaking fish until I die? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a hold of this thing. I'm going to grab for his gills. I'm going to hold it like this if I have to. I'm going to roll around. I don't care what the other fishermen are thinking when they're looking at me, but I'm going to get a hold of this thing, and I'm gonna, it's going to slip out of my hands, and I'm going to completely fail. I'm going to dive back on it, and I'm going to like stick my head in its mouth and push its teeth into my head so it can't get away. I'm going to, anything, I'm going to just fight and fight and fight and fight. And what Jesus says is that we can experience progressive transformation in this so that we can get further along. So that it's not always crazy, but it's always going to be hard, and it's going to be a bloody, messy thing. And if you can put away the moralism, whether or not you're a good person, you just put that away, and you can realize that you—the same reason you can't sleep with a prostitute is the same reason you can do this, because you are one with Christ, one with His Spirit, one with his future kingdom and present reality. One with him and being formed into his character, imitating him, being in Christ and with him. Because of that, you can do it. But you have to do it. You have to believe. Let's pray. Fathers, we reflect on this. And as we try to become a people that are escaping diversion. Before next week we consider growing in discipline, would you please work in us the mind of Christ, the encouragement of the Spirit, the desire to embrace wholesome creation and to live in self-sacrificial love? Will you give us hope? And in the striving, will you give us joy? And will you do it with us together so that we can enjoy each other in the fight? We pray that in this you would make our work our play. Out of love in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us as we respond by singing hymn number